0: Millions of Americans could soon lose their Medicaid coverage, but they don't know it.
1: We fully expect in April for people to call us from the pharmacy, that's often where they learn that, oh, my Medicaid doesn't work.
0: It's Monday, March 20th, this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. We'll tell you about the pandemic-era Medicaid rule that's about to end. The U.S. invaded Iraq 20 years ago today. NPR's Eric Westervelt will look back at that day on the front lines.
2: The U.S. officer I was with told his soldiers, this is the start of liberation of Iraq. They were about to go into battle.
0: Also, the for profit Bay State College in Boston loses its bid to stay open in a fight with accreditors. Now the focus turns to helping students
3: caught in the middle. It's 401. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Hundreds of scientists are behind a new U.N. report that warns the planet is staring down potential environmental catastrophe if climate goals are not met in the coming decade. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports. The report lays out the dire situation facing the Earth.
4: Rapidly rising seas, more intense and deadly storms, floods, droughts, and heat waves.
5: Here's U.N. Secretary
4: General Antonio Guterres.
5: The climate time bomb is ticking. But today's IPCC report is a how-to guide to defuse the climate time bomb. It is a survival guide for humanity.
4: The report lays out the many options for controlling global warming, including using solar, wind, and other renewable energy sources. Pivoting away from fossil fuels would save millions of lives, particularly in low-income and low-lying areas where people are especially vulnerable to climate change. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News.
3: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is the latest Republican to speak out against a possible indictment of former President Trump. And PR's Greg Allen has more.
5: Trump has said he expects to be arrested on Tuesday in a case surrounding alleged payments of hush money to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Other Republicans, including former Vice President Mike Pence, criticized the possible indictment as political. At a news conference, DeSantis, a likely Trump rival for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, attacked Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, saying he weaponized his office to impose a political agenda. But he didn't defend Trump.
2: I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that.
5: DeSantis said he doesn't expect to be involved in a possible extradition of the former president, calling it a manufactured circus. Greg Allen, in PR News, Miami.
3: Chinese President Xi Jinping is in Moscow for a three-day state visit with Russian President Vladimir Putin with talks expected to focus heavily on the war in Ukraine. Here in Washington, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is commenting on reports of China's proposal for a ceasefire in Ukraine.
6: Calling for a ceasefire that does not include the removal of Russian forces from Ukrainian territory would effectively be supporting the ratification of Russian conquest. It would recognize Russia's attempts to seize the sovereign neighbor's territory by force.
3: The absence of a durable solution, says Blinken, would give Russia a strategic break in action and the latitude to restart the war when Putin is ready. Another round of layoffs is in the works at Amazon. The announcement went out in a letter to employees and on the company blog. Around 9,000 jobs will be sliced from web services, advertising, and Twitch video streaming sections. This is in addition to the 18,000 Amazon job cuts announced in January. Wall Street at the close, the Dow up 382. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is
0: 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Joliker in Boston. More now on that new climate change report from the United Nations. It's calling for cities to focus on development that's climate resilient. That means building in a way that reduces emissions and protects people from climate dangers like flooding and rapid sea level rise. Rachel Cletus is with the Cambridge-based Union of Concerned Scientists.
7: So making sure that as we're developing our coastline here in Boston, we're thinking about that sea level rise that's accelerating and building in a climate resilient fashion, not just the big high priced real estate, but every community.
0: The report says the world must cut greenhouse gas emissions in half by the end of the decade to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. A for-profit college in Boston is slated to close this summer. Today, a commission that oversees higher ed institutions said it's rejected an appeal by Bay State College to keep its accreditation. The commission says it's pulling Bay State's accreditation after the school year over concerns about its uncertain finances. The announcement means the school is expected to shut down by September. Bay State College says it will work to place students in other schools. Well, spring officially arrives this evening at 524. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says it's been a relatively mild winter in the Boston area.
8: Well, we got off pretty easy this winter overall above average temperatures resulted in boston ranking as the fifth warmest winter since records have been kept in terms of snow we've had just over a foot 12.4 inches to be exact and a normal year brings us just over 49 inches so that was a significant deficit feet of snow inland and in the mountains from the last nor'easter means an increased risk of spring flooding in these areas And above average temperatures are forecast to continue this spring. Expect lots of things blooming in the weeks to come and a big increase in the number of ticks too. Today's equinox brings
0: us just over 12 hours of daylight in Boston. Sunset tonight is at 6.56. And the weather is cooperating with this start to spring. Tonight we'll have mostly clear skies with temps in the low 30s. Tomorrow looks gorgeous. It'll be sunny with temperatures around 60 degrees. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9
9: WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary
11: Louise Kelly in Washington. As many as 18 million Americans could lose their health insurance over the coming months, and many don't even realize it. That is because a federal rule that protected people's Medicaid coverage during the pandemic expires
12: at the end of March, NPR's Maria Godoy reports. Before the pandemic, people often got dropped from Medicaid, not just when they were no longer eligible but because keeping your coverage involves a lot of red tape. It's a big hassle. So when Congress passed a law back in 2020 that barred states from dropping Medicaid recipients, Catherine Bamberger of Southeast Healthcare in Ohio says that was a relief for many low-income people.
1: That's been really huge because you don't want to find out that you don't have your Medicaid when you're
12: in the emergency room, and especially during a pandemic. But that protection expires March 31st, which means people will once again have to provide documentation to stay on Medicaid. Stephanie Jorgensen is a 33-year-old single mother of two in Columbus, Ohio. She says the process can be incredibly frustrating.
4: Gathering all of the verifications is like the most stressful part. It's a job. She spent
12: much of her career working in social services nonprofits.
4: I'm like, the Encyclopedia of Social Services to a lot of my friends.
12: Jorgensen is also on Medicaid, and she says even with all her expertise, it's a ton of work to navigate the system.
4: I have a master's, and it's still like a fight every step of the way.
12: For example, she has to provide documentation that she no longer works at a nonprofit job she left more than a decade ago. That nonprofit doesn't even exist anymore.
13: So I can't even get a verification from
14: them stating that, you know, that they don't exist.
12: Still, Jorgensen is relatively lucky. At least she knows she has to renew her Medicaid soon. A recent survey from the Urban Institute found that nationwide, the majority of Americans enrolled in Medicaid don't know they'll need to act to keep their coverage. Catherine Bamberger of Southeast Healthcare says the reality is many people won't realize they've lost Medicaid coverage until they actually need it.
1: We fully expect in April for people to call us from the pharmacy. That's often where they learn that, oh, my Medicaid doesn't work.
12: Ohio has already started sending out renewal packets. At least 200,000 people in the state are expected to lose coverage starting in April. But that's just the people who will no longer be eligible. Many others who are eligible will nonetheless be dropped for Medicaid because the state can't reach them. You've got a disproportionate
1: number of people here who are not computer literate and whose housing is unstable.
12: Many people have moved since the last time they had to renew their Medicaid three years ago so they may not get their renewal notice. Samuel Camacho is a health insurance navigator with the Universal Healthcare Action Network of Ohio. He says language is another major barrier.
14: Most individuals are going to be vulnerable because of their lack of English. So they may receive a letter, but they can't read it.
12: Camacho helps Spanish speakers in the Columbus, Ohio region with their Medicaid paperwork. He says the process has gotten much harder because the local Medicaid offices have been closed to the public since the pandemic.
14: Before the pandemic, individuals were able to go to the offices with an interpreter and have conversations with their case managers, print documents, find documents in their language, have interactions with people, even other Medicaid recipients. We've lost that.
12: And he says that kind of word of mouth is really important for his community.
14: Latinos, we're a group that thrives on communication. Abuelita le dijo a Titi, Titi le dijo al primo y el primo me lo dijo a mí. So we're losing
12: that. Nowadays, Camacho helps Spanish speakers, often mothers, with Medicaid enrollment over the phone or at public libraries. He says the process generally takes two hours, but that's just the start of it. He says he often has to interpret when the state sends requests for more documentation.
14: You know, the bill that you send was under your husband's name, but it needs to be under both of your names. Little details. And if those details are not taken care of you're denied.
12: He says in his experience, those denials happen more often than not. And even though they're usually overturned on appeal,
14: it's the heartache of having to do it again and again and again. It makes no sense.
12: As frustrating as it can be, Camacho says he wants to make sure people on Medicaid know this. Todos en Medicaid tendrán que volver a inscribirse. Everyone on Medicaid will have to re-enroll. Maria Godoy, NPR News. All right, we're going to bring you an
10: update now about a closely watched immigration case, one that is deeply intertwined with the debate over asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. The woman at the center of this case fled El Salvador after her ex-husband threatened her life. And now, almost a decade later, she is finally reuniting with her children in the U.S. NPR's Joel Rose has been covering this case through many twists and turns and has this exclusive. Hey, Joel. Hey, Elsa. So before you take us to this reunion, can you just talk about why this case is so important? I mean, not just to the family involved here, but to other asylum seekers.
15: Sure. Basically, it is because the Trump administration tried to use this case as part of its crackdown on asylum at the border, in particular for survivors of domestic violence and gender-based violence. This woman was identified in court papers as Miss A.B. She fled El Salvador to get away from her abusive ex-husband, made her way to the U.S., and crossed the border illegally into Texas and asked for asylum. And for a moment, it seemed like she had won in immigration court until then Attorney General Jeff Sessions intervened in her case, seemingly out of nowhere, and used it to set a precedent that domestic violence should generally not be grounds for asylum. And then what happened? Well, her lawyers kept fighting the case, and the election of 2020 happened. Attorney General Merrick Garland came into office and overturned that precedent, clearing the way for this woman to finally get asylum. She petitioned for her children to join her in the U.S., And that is what finally brought both of us to the airport in Atlanta a few days
7: ago.
15: She is excited and nervous, she says, wearing a white cardigan sweater with her dark straight hair pulled back in a ponytail. Up until now, we've called her by her initials, Miss A.B. For this story, she says we can use her first name, Annabelle, but only her first name because she's still worried about her abusive ex-husband finding her all these years later. How long has it been since you have seen your children? It's been eight years since Annabelle left El Salvador after years of brutal abuse. She left in the middle of the night without saying goodbye to her kids in person. We first met five years ago when then Attorney General Sessions had just intervened in her case. At that time, it was very sad, very hard, she says, not knowing what was going to happen with my kids. She hasn't seen her sons since they were teenagers, And she's never met her two grandchildren, except on video screens. Now we're waiting at the International Terminal in Atlanta for all of them. Two sons, a daughter, and two grandkids. And already, Annabelle is crying tears of joy. Because I don't know them, she says. And I finally get to know them.
0: This is what the asylum system was intended for, you know, for somebody whose life
16: is at risk.
15: Blaine Bookie is one of Annabelle's lawyers at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at the UC College of the Law, San Francisco. For Bookie, this moment is bittersweet because it should have happened years ago.
0: It shouldn't be this hard, you know, and just the games that we're playing with people's lives like hers. um, You know, they should have the opportunity to find safety and to reunify with their children.
15: There's another reason this reunion is bittersweet for immigrant advocates. It comes just as the Biden administration is considering new rules that would make it harder to get asylum.
17: Do not, do not just show up at the border.
15: Critics have complained for years that migrants are exploiting the asylum system. Immigration courts are overloaded, with backlogs stretching for years. Immigration hardliners argue that's creating a loophole that allows migrants to ask for asylum, even if their claims are flimsy, because they know they'll be allowed to stay in the U.S. while their cases play out. Republicans say this is a big reason why record numbers of migrants have been arrested at the southern border over the last two years. Here's Senator John Cornyn of Texas speaking on the Senate floor earlier this month.
18: Deterrence is a key component of a safe and secure border, and until the administration starts deterring would-be migrants with frivolous asylum claims from crossing
15: the border, we will remain in a constant state of crisis. This is the tension the Biden administration is trying to manage at the border. How to preserve asylum protections for those who need them, while also deterring migrants from crossing illegally in big numbers and overwhelming the system. The Biden administration has proposed a rule that would make it harder to get asylum if you've crossed the border illegally, without first seeking protection in Mexico or somewhere else along the way. But immigrant advocates worry that plan will put asylum out of reach for many migrants who have valid claims, including survivors of domestic violence. Women like
7: Annabelle. That
15: seems very bad to me, Annabelle says, because many women are the same as me. Fleeing from being murdered by violence. At the airport in Atlanta, Annabelle is pressing right up against the retractable nylon barrier, watching nervously for her children and grandchildren. Finally, after we've been waiting for about an hour, they walk out of the baggage claim. And for a long moment, the whole family just huddles together in one big hug in the middle of the
7: terminal.
15: Annabelle squeezes her three-year-old
19: granddaughter. <laughs>
15: One of her two sons tosses the kid playfully up in the air, and Annabelle gently scolds him to be careful. In the morning, they'll all head off to her home a few hours away to start their lives together again and celebrate at her favorite restaurant, the Chinese buffet. When we sit down to talk this time, I hear something new in her voice, relief
7: Mi salto de.
15: My heart jumped for joy, Annabelle says. I always said I wasn't complete when they were in El Salvador. I was 50% happy and 50% sad. Now I feel 100% happy.
7: Annabelle's
15: lawyers know all about mixed feelings. They share that happiness, but they also worry that cases like hers may soon be harder to win. Joel Rose, NPR News, Atlanta.
11: You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on WBUR this afternoon.
0: It's four eighteen. coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered. The Iraq War started 20 years ago today, and NPR's Eric Westervelt was there. He'll reflect on that day.
9: WBUR supporters include the Harvard Art Museums, with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American art from the Spanish Empire, free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org and Lesley University. Inspire future generations with an education degree from Lesley University. Learn more at lesley.edu.
0: On Wall Street, stocks ended the day just slightly up. The Dow gained 1.2 percent, or 383 points, to close the day at 32,245. The S&P inched up just under a percentage point, ending at 3,952. NASDAQ picked up 0.4 percent to land at 11,676. In business news, Amazon plans to lay off nearly 9,000 more workers over the next few weeks, The cuts mark the second largest round of layoffs in the company's history. It's unclear how many workers in Massachusetts will be affected. The company says the layoffs will be made in corporate units, not in fulfillment centers or delivery stations. This is WBUR.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, rewarding community heroes during their first responder days, now through March 22nd. For details, visit OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite
11: programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org.
0: Taking a look at the forecast, the clear skies will stick around tonight. We'll get down to about 31 degrees. Tomorrow looks like a beautiful first day of spring. It'll be sunny and warmer with temps approaching 60. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of
20: Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable
11: society. More at Mott.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The
10: Colorado River is shrinking, and who gets to use its water was at stake in a case before the Supreme Court today. Justices heard arguments in a case brought by the Navajo Nation, and the eventual ruling could blow up the delicate balance of how water from the river is shared. Here to explain more is NPR's Eric Whitney, our Bureau Chief for the Rocky Mountains and Great Plains. Hi, Eric. Hello, Elsa. So why exactly is the Navajo Nation suing the federal government here?
6: The Navajo Nation says that the federal government owes them water based on a pair of treaties that they signed back in the 19th century. Those treaties say that in exchange for people on the nation giving up their nomadic way of life and settling down on a reservation, that the federal government would make sure there's enough water for that and for them to develop agriculture.
10: Okay, and how much water are we talking about here?
6: That's really the central question. And this specific case alone is unlikely to determine that, but depending on how the court rules, it could push the federal government toward defining exactly how much water the Navajo Nation needs. You know, we should note that it's still pretty common for people on the Navajo reservation to not have running water at home. And many people have to drive long distances just to get water for the daily needs. What the court's doing now is re-examining promises made more than a century ago. Back when the federal government created Indian reservations, It was with this understanding that with the land came adequate water and there's a lot of case law reaffirming that some some tribes have been given specific amounts of water based on that precedent but exactly how much water is adequate for the navajo reservation has never been explicitly defined and in this case the navajo nation says it's not asking for that it's not asking for a specific amount of water the tribe just says that the treaties obligate the federal government to come up with a water development plan Now, coming up with a plan would likely mean defining exactly how much water the Navajo need, and it's very likely that water would have to come from the Colorado River. But the federal government disagrees that it's required to come up with a plan, and it's pretty clear that at this time it has no desire to quantify exactly how much water the Navajo Nation has rights to.
10: I mean, why doesn't the federal government want to define how much water the Navajo need? I mean, does it have to do with the huge demand of water that the Colorado River already sees?
6: You know that's sort of the huge elephant in the room here the the federal government has acknowledged how hard it would be to open up negotiations on this water sharing agreement on the colorado especially now in the middle of this strangling drought we're in the middle of and and this with climate change making things very unpredictable you know the colorado is a lifeline for 40 to 50 million people in seven states there's there's already more demand for water from the colorado than is actually in the river And when there's a shortage those with the oldest water rights are last in line for cuts so like right now arizona is seeing some cutbacks because california has older rights Hmm. so if it's determined that the navajo have rights to water in the river their claims would be among the oldest and the most powerful so a lot of people are really afraid of navajo rights being explicitly defined because any water that the navajo get would have to be taken away from somebody else but again, you know the federal government isn't saying that it's shying away from defining Navajo water rights because it would be hard. It's just saying it's not obligated to do so. It says that the treaties only obligate them to reserve enough water for the tribe, not to name a specific amount or to you know pay for pipelines or canals to actually deliver water to people or farms there. They say that the tribe is on its own to come up with its own plan, and you know it's free to start drilling for groundwater. They say nothing in the treaties obligates the federal government to deliver water to them from the Colorado River.
10: And real quick, Eric, do you have any indication at this point of what the court is likely to do?
6: I mean, first, they're going to have to figure out exactly what the treaties obligate the federal government to do. Right now, the court has a lot of power over the Colorado River because the current water-sharing agreement rests on a lawsuit that the Supreme Court uh, uh, ruled on previously. So it could reopen that. But attorneys with the federal government argue that Congress should be the ultimate arbiter here.
10: That is NPR's Eric Whitney. Thank you, Eric.
6: Thank you, Elsa. Thank uh-huh. you.
11: Right now, the world's number one competitive pinball player is 19-year-old Escher Lefkoff from Longmont, Colorado. So how does one become the world's number one competitive pinball player? Lefkoff says by learning lessons that apply beyond the game. Colorado Public Radio's Matt Bloom has this story.
21: On this game, every single time you start, you get a ball on the right flipper. You control everything that happens in the game. And if you make a decision that ends with you draining, then that's on you.
22: Escher Levkoff is playing a game inside a barn on his family's farm. It's full of rows of dozens of flashing bright pinball machines from classics like Ready Aim Fire to more modern games like Jurassic Park.
5: Fossil collected.
22: Escher's journey to the top of the pinball world started here when he was just old enough to walk. His dad, Adam, a collector and competitive player, coached him he'd bring Escher along with him to a local
18: arcade. And it became a regular, every weekend, Escher and I would go to Lions and play pinball. He really enjoyed playing it from the earliest of age. Escher would stand
22: on a wooden stool between his dad and the machine so he could watch him play. And when he saw a trick he wanted to learn, they would come home to the barn and practice it together.
21: I remember um, there was this one skill called drop catching, which is very difficult, but very useful. And we went on Indiana Jones when I was like nine years old. In our basement and he took the glass off and we sat there for about 20 minutes just practicing over and over and over again and then three weeks later i was great at it
18: after a while they realized escher was pretty good imagine if you played baseball and every single ballpark was completely different and so the kids growing up they on these complicated games i can't keep it all straight. Escher's
22: sharp memory of different games has helped him crush the competition, like during the recent World Championships in California.
18: 15 seconds again.
22: Lefkoff beat out a veteran player in a Flash Gordon-themed game.
18: He got it! By, 6, By 6,000 points. points he wins oh it. My
21: God. And the moment I saw my score pass, 1.5 million, that's when I turned around and gave my dad a hug after I won. It was more than a hug. Yeah. He jumped it
18: into jumped my in arms. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He wins it. Unbelievable!
22: The trophies he's won over the years line the walls inside the family's pinball barn. Escher
18: and his dad have played over 200 tournaments together. I could beat three-year-old Escher and five-year-old Escher with one arm tied behind my back, but 16-year-old Escher and 19-year-old Escher has been kicking my butt for the last few years. Yeah, when I was
21: about 13 is when it swapped to us being about even, and then 16 was when I started. Yeah, there's a serious inflection point there. You see, yeah.
22: Besides all the competition and rankings, they just love the game and everything it has to offer. The physicality
18: of the buttons and flippers, and of course, the silver ball. You have this ball in play. No matter what you do, that ball is going to drain. You cannot play forever. We are going to die. That is just a fact of life. So it really depends on what you do with the ball, with your opportunity. Mesher's taken that philosophy from his dad to
21: heart. That's why having a plan in pinball is so important, because you got to know what you're doing next. Have an end goal.
22: His latest goal, hold on to the crown as long as he can. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom in Longmont.
0: This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next half hour on All Things Considered. Why more people are being diagnosed with colon cancer in their 30s and 40s and even younger. And the warning signs you should watch out for. We'll have clear skies tonight. The low will be around 31 degrees. Tomorrow, the first full day of spring looks picturesque. We'll have sunny skies with a high around 60. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston at 429.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods. Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Tony Award-winning musical is coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. And now a second week of performances has just been added. Into the Woods plays at Emerson Colonial Theatre for two weeks starting tomorrow. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheatre.com and Bernadine's son Megason, and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com.
23: I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, mental health care mandated by a court. Massachusetts is one of only three states where a judge can't mandate outpatient mental health care. Should they be able to? From the newsroom, reporter Deborah Becker takes us into the debate. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
24: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is seeking to put the kibosh on a Republican measure that bans the government from considering climate change or potential lawsuits when making investment decisions for Americans' retirement plans. It's the first veto of his presidency. I just signed this veto
25: because the legislation passed by the Congress would put at risk the retirement savings of individuals across the country.
24: The environmental and social investment plan has strong support in Congress and was already approved by the Senate, making it unlikely Biden's veto could be overridden. The move is another sign of shifting relations with the White House and the new Congress since Republicans took control of the House back in January. The GOP claims the rule would politicize investing by allowing plan managers to pursue liberal causes, which they say would hurt financial performance. Job losses across the tech sector continue to deepen. Amazon today announced an additional 9,000 layoffs. NPR's Andrea Hsu has more on the latest cutbacks.
26: Amazon CEO Andy Jassy first forecast layoffs last fall, noting the challenging economy. In January, he announced 18,000 positions were being eliminated. And now, in what Jassy calls the second phase of the company's operating plan, another 9,000 jobs are being cut. They include jobs with Amazon's cloud computing platform and its video game streaming platform, Twitch, as well as in advertising. Jassy again cited economic uncertainties, telling employees in a memo, we have chosen to be more streamlined in our costs and headcount. The layoffs come after a period of intense hiring for Amazon, which almost doubled its headcount since 2019. He noted some limited hiring would still continue in strategic areas. Andrea Hsu, NPR News.
24: Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. The Dow gained 382 points, up more than 1%. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Bay State College in Boston will close its doors this summer. Today, the school officially lost its accreditation from the New England Commission of Higher Education, which rejected an appeal from the college to continue operating. WBUR's Max Larkin has more.
27: So this represents kind of a devastating, if not unexpected, blow to Bay State College. Certainly the college has been struggling with its finances for years and accreditors didn't seem to like that they put too rosy a picture on their money situation as well as their enrollment projections. So this represents a creditor's final step kind of laying the path for the college to either graduate its remaining students or see them transfer to other schools by the end of August.
0: Bay State College says it's disappointed by the decision and will soon share more information on how it'll help students find new schools. Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo hopes to ban the sale of mini bottles of alcohol, or nips, in the city. Arroyo has filed an order that requests a hearing to discuss his proposed ban. It's on the agenda for Wednesday's city council meeting. Arroyo says he got the idea from Chelsea's council, which banned nips in 2018. He says that city saw a big decrease in the number of alcohol-related Health incidents.
14: They went and banned NIPS, and within a year of that time, that number dropped, I believe, 75%. And so it was a significant impact. Uh, just from the banning of NIFs on public health outcomes.
0: Arroyo says the ban would also prevent the tiny bottles from clogging recycling machines, and it would keep litter out of parks. It's another first day on the job for former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. Today, he started work as the executive director for the NHL Players Association. This month, Walsh stepped down as U.S. Labor Secretary. That's the cabinet role for which he left Boston City Hall in 2021. It's 434.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com.
0: Well, this beginning of spring weather will stick around through the next couple of days. Tonight will be mostly clear. We'll have temps in the low 30s. Tomorrow, a boost for the coming crocuses and daffodils. It'll be sunny and temperatures will jump to about 60 degrees. Wednesday looks partly sunny with a high of 53. Thursday will likely be wet with the greatest chance of rain in the afternoon. Temperatures will be in the upper 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from listeners like you who
10: donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Today marks 20 years since the start of Operation Iraqi Freedom. For our reporter who was on the Iraq-Kuwait border, the war started with a barrage of artillery fire. NPR's Eric Westervelt was embedded with the lead attack elements of the U.S. Army's 3rd Infantry Division.
2: I remember this, you know, sustained barrage, the thuds echoing. Artillery?
19: Yeah, give
2: me up. The U.S. officer I was with told his soldiers, you know, this is the start of liberation of Iraq. Sound of freedom right there. They were about to go into battle. Remember the context. The invasion started when the nation was still sort of traumatized by 9-11. And the nation was told, you know, look, this dictator, Saddam, He's hatching all these plots with chemical, biological, maybe even nuclear weapons. Of course, we now know that was you know, a manufactured threat. Cheney, Rumsfeld, and others manipulated, cherry-picked, or completely manufactured intelligence to wildly exaggerate the
17: threat. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger.
13: NPR's Eric Westervelt joins us now. He has been embedded with the 3rd Infantry Division of the Army. Eric, can you tell us where you are, please?
2: I'm in southern Iraq, traveling with the U.S. Army's Second Combat Brigade of the Third Infantry Division. It's a mechanized. Eric
11: was one of three of NPR reporters in Iraq at the time. Abrams John Burnett was traveling with the Marines' First Division, Army. and Ann Gerrels was one of the few Americans reporting in Baghdad during the U.S.-led bombing campaign. Meanwhile, Eric is in an armored convoy heading north towards the capital. He's in the back of a Bradley fighting vehicle, a fast-moving transport that rides on treads and provides cover fire
17: on top of the buildings down there they got fighting positions set up uh,
11: fortified
22: with sandbags and there's a lot of towers down there
11: in the beginning days as they push north the convoy hits resistance from iraqi army and fedayeen paramilitary forces
2: the organized iraqi military was totally overwhelmed And the iraqis were sort of unable to respond in any traditional military Way, and they became to rely on, you know, Iraqi Saddam Fedayeen, sort of most loyalists. Uh, and they, they were using, you know, hit-and-run tactics, roadside bombs, stealth attacks, car bombs. They've been sending some suicide bombers, cars packed with explosives, hurtling out of the side alleyways towards the convoy.
11: A week after the start of the invasion, the armored battalion is fighting to secure the Iraqi city of Najaf, considered sacred by Shia Muslims.
2: They were trying to get a a group of Iraqis to um, surrender, so some uh, psyops, you know, uh, intel team had come out with a translator and a bullhorn and said, you know, we want you to surrender, you're going to be treated well. The U.S. forces get the Iraqi answer to the surrender plea, in the form of rocket-propelled grenades and a heavy barrage of mortar fire. This is the sound of an RPG whizzing overhead before the tape goes blank, as this reporter dives behind a Humvee.
11: After another battle south of Baghdad, the U.S. battalion commander lets families collect the bodies of Iraqi fighters killed in an overnight firefight.
16: Please, my children, please. (laughs) Babies, please.
11: Grieving family members,
2: widows, coming to retrieve their dead, putting them in the backs of trunks. I remember the soldiers looking at that as well and realizing we did that. And one soldier said to the other ones, hey, guys, remember, a few hours ago, those same guys were trying to kill you.
28: You Just can't get uh, emotionally involved. He's just gonna do your job and drive on.
11: By early April, U.S. forces close in on Iraq capital the 3rd infantry division 2nd brigade charges towards what was then called Saddam Hussein International Airport
2: This first push into Baghdad to the airport was really an intense fast violent armored raid they called a thunder run up highway 8 and you had Iraqis firing from rooftops and garages with RPGs and with AK-47s We just got hit with an RPG. The other really difficult part in this attack Iraqi civilians were coming down the southbound lane, and some civilians were caught uh, in the crossfire. You know, one of the most haunting memories I have is peering out the back of the Bradley, recording every moment I could, and, and seeing a car on fire. It was filled with uh, civilians, and a small child was standing outside the car, you know, just screaming uh, in horror as he watched uh, his parents die. And you had both sides firing a lot, and any civilians that were there uh, were in just incredible and, and grave risk.
6: Everybody keeps
4: saying it's for the oil. Not to mention of this has been about no oil. The only thing is trying to bring a bad regime down and make people free
11: The U.S. seizes the airport, and a now famous scene unfolds in Baghdad. Iraqi civilians, with the help of U.S. Marines, topple a statue of Iraq's fallen dictator. Here's NPR's and Carol's. 54 Hasib Nouri, a taxi driver, tossed his shoes at a statue of Saddam, a deeply insulting gesture in the Arab world. Thank you, America, he said, for removing this dictator. But tearing down statues, as the Soviets once saw, is easy. Filling the vacuum will be much more difficult. There was this
2: momentary period of euphoria among Iraqis that, that you know, the dictator is gone. Um, at the same time, you know, the Iraqi a welcome was so
6: short-lived.
11: NPR's John Burnett spoke with Iraqi civilians who initially supported the U.S.
6: Sabah Salim Hussein is a 45-year-old jowly bookseller in Sadr City. I brought one of my relatives a picture of President Bush to post on the wall of his house. He claimed that Bush helped get rid of Saddam. Now I swear it. Every day he stomps on the picture of Bush with his shoes because he has lost two sons. And during Saddam's time,
2: he lost nothing. While the initial invasion and overthrow of Saddam was briefly considered a success, I mean, the occupation was horrifically mismanaged. It unleashed years of bloody sectarian civil war and trauma. And later, it, it helped give rise to more terrorists with the rise of ISIS, uh, who for a brief period controlled large parts of Iraq and Syria. but. We at that point didn't fully realize that this was just the start of Iraq's long nightmare.
11: NPR's Eric Westervelt, reflecting on the start of the U.S. invasion of Iraq 20 years ago. The story was produced by our colleagues on NPR One. This is NPR News.
10: Colorectal cancer is on the rise among people under 50. Since the mid-1990s, cases have increased about 50 percent among younger adults, and it is one of the deadliest cancers in this age group. Doctors are even seeing cases in people in their 20s and 30s. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports on what doctors and scientists think may be fueling the rise.
29: About six years ago, DeAndre Williams, who lives in Covington, Georgia, noticed something that concerned him. He had blood in his stool, which can be an early warning sign of colorectal cancer. At the time, he was 35 years old and really into weightlifting. He had bulked up to 240 pounds, all muscle, he says.
25: I saw blood in my stool and I decided to diagnose myself with hemorrhoids by going to Google. And picking the least of the po- worst possible scenarios.
29: He did not go to the doctor right away because he figured the hemorrhoids would go away. And looking back, he says he was in denial that he was vulnerable to something more serious.
25: I thought I was healthy.
29: He laid off weightlifting for a few weeks, but the bleeding did not stop. Instead, it got worse. When he did seek medical care, he was sent for a colonoscopy. And he remembers the moment he woke up after the anesthesia had worn off.
25: I just remember my wife sitting there and he came in and was just like, yep, we saw some polyps and it it looks like it's going to be cancerous. After that, I shut down. All I heard was cancer.
29: He was diagnosed with colorectal cancer and he had a tumor. Then he had surgery to remove a portion of his colon. Six years later, he's back to volunteer football coaching and speaking at community events about the importance of colorectal cancer screening.
25: My status now is 100% free of cancer. So I, it's like, I, I speak it, I live it, I do everything I can to make sure it doesn't even resurface.
29: He does have a family history of colon cancer. So he says he'll make sure his children are screened at an even younger age and he says he thinks a lot more now about how he and his family cook, eat, and exercise. Dr. Kimmy Ng directs the Young Onset Colorectal Cancer Center at Dana-Farber in Boston. She says there's a lot of research underway now to figure out what may be fueling the rise in people under 50.
30: We know that colorectal cancer is one of the cancers that is most strongly linked to diet and lifestyle. So no matter what age you are diagnosed, Certain factors are associated with a higher risk, and those include obesity, sedentary behavior, and a Western-pattern diet, which is high in processed foods
29: and sugars. Looking back, DeAndre Williams says he may have been eating in a way that was harmful to his health, going all the way back to childhood.
25: I was an athlete. My dad was a truck driver, so everything was grab and go. It was never a time that we really had to sit down other than Sunday dinner with grandma.
29: He says too often he was eating the kinds of foods that he now tries to avoid.
25: Processed foods, processed meats, um, bacon, sausages, um, too much red meat, too much sugar, uh, well, you mainly basically your white sugars, uh, white bread.
29: Now he says he eats completely differently, a lot more produce, fruit. He tries to focus on lean proteins and healthy fats. He says he feels good and is trying to inspire others in his community. He says people need to know about screening, signs, and symptoms. And he says many people do listen when he talks about how he changed his habits. Alison Aubrey, NPR News.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, United Nations scientists released their latest climate report with warnings about how fast the world has to cut carbon emissions.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com In sports, the Red Sox dropped a
0: spring training matchup today with the Pirates in Fort Myers. Pittsburgh won 7-5. to Taking a look at the forecast. Well, winter's days are numbered. In fact, winter is numbered in minutes. Spring arrives this afternoon at 524. Daylight will increase until the summer solstice on June 21st. And the forecast is cooperating with this start to spring. We'll have mostly clear skies tonight with the low right around freezing. Tomorrow looks gorgeous. It'll be sunny with temps around the 60 degree mark. Then Wednesday should still be partly sunny at least with temperatures in the low 50s. This is 90 .9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Stanhope
11: Framers Back Bay and Somerville celebrating 50 years of museum quality custom frames for individuals artists and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. dot
12: Chronic discomfort and a bustling social life can have a hard time coexisting.
14: I'm constantly in pain and so I don't really go out
1: at all.
12: In Maryland, there may be a solution, cannabis cafes. But these spaces are operating in a bit of a gray area. So what's next to get weed out of a legal haze? Listen tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again
29: tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB Warm.
11: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Many high school seniors are figuring out their college plans. NPR's Clara Murashima looked into some of higher education's quirkier offerings. She found one on a campus farm at the University of Maryland.
30: Sheep management is a popular course at UMD, and there's usually a wait list. When the spring-only course starts, students pair up to care for one of 20 pregnant sheep. Watch was the reason I came to this university. That's teaching assistant Caitlin Mercado. Sarah Balcom, who taught the class for 12 years, says that sheep usually give birth at night, and that can be inconvenient. You're on call, you have your phone with you at all hours of the night. Before sheep go into labor, they stop eating their grain, they isolate themselves, and their bodies get ready for delivery. (laughs) Students try their best to make it to the farm in time.
13: They have told me stories of waking up in the middle of the night and driving 45 minutes and trying hard not to speed because you're never quite sure if the cop's going to believe you that you're going to the birth of your lamb.
30: Their first job is just to stand by. If all is going well, they don't intervene. Once the lambs are born, students run through a list of health checks. Caitlin Mercado remembers cleaning stalls, trimming hooves, taking temperatures and something else she learned, lambs aren't white and fluffy.
31: I was expecting them to be really soft, but they're really like oily and like greasy. And I was not expecting my hand to come back like brown from the like grease. That grease?
30: Lanolin, a wax they produce naturally. It's also used by humans to treat blisters and dry skin.
13: I'm going to turn it off with my
30: sponge and the syllabus calls for a specific uniform: boots that can withstand an acid wash and coveralls that students keep at the farmhouse. That's to prevent the spread of disease.
31: You were not allowed to wash them with your normal clothes, mainly so that if you did get something like. After birth or poop or pee, which is very common, um, yeah. you weren't contaminating your other clothes. I can see the water skating. Yes, we like it hot. hot.
30: Like- Claire Jennings Hi. took sheet management in 2022. I have like ADD, and on top of that, I have like anxiety depression. and depression. Yeah. She says regular classroom settings, they've never really worked for her. I'd have to take really okay. intensive, ridiculously intricate notes and do like a lot of highlighting and at the end of the class I don't feel like I've learned anything. I actually feel like I kind of feel dumber going out than than coming in. But managing a flock of sheep, it's super hands-on, which is how she learns best. Now, she's a TA. I like the empowerment feeling I get after the hands-on lessons where I'm like, I could totally go and do this by myself now. No problem. Oh, The lambs are born in pens, but when they're a few weeks old, they're moved to a big enclosure where they can socialize and be part of the flock.
20: They will have
30: lamb races, they will start getting the zoomies. And once they're grown, the males will often be sold for meat, and the females sold to other farms for breeding. At some point, we have to kind
32: of start distancing ourselves from them because we are going to sell them.
30: After all, this is a working farm.
32: And that can be really hard on students whose primary experiences have always been with
30: pets. Because at the end of the day, this farm still needs to pay the bills. Claire Marishima, NPR News.
11: And you can check out all the cute lamb pictures at npr.org.
10: In Detroit, the neighborhood of Black Bottom thrived as a center of African-American life in the first half of the 20th century. Then the construction of a highway and government-mandated redevelopment all but wiped the neighborhood out. But a recently discovered quilt is providing a peek into what life in Black Bottom was like more than 50 years ago. Sophia Salaby of member station WKAR in East Lansing reports. It might have
33: been a simple quilt, but the minute Marsha McDowell saw it in an online sale, she knew it had to come home to Michigan. Quilted in blue and white fabric, the design includes 20 X-shaped blocks. Embroidered on each are names like Sister Roberta Wilson and Mrs. Molly Mason, along with addresses and telephone numbers. As someone who grew up in Detroit, the Michigan State University Museum, curator of folk arts and quilt studies, recognized the street names. It is in a location
31: where urban renewal in the 1960s pretty much took down every residential building. And if you go on Google map, what you see are vacant lots. One of the few
33: buildings still standing is the Zion Congregational Church of God and Christ on Mack Avenue. The nearly century old church is near what was once Detroit's Black Bottom neighborhood. The community, which grew from African-Americans migrating from the South, included dozens of Black-owned businesses and a well-known music and nightclub scene. In 2021, McDowell decided to post photos of the quilt to a church Facebook
31: page. We were flooded with responses that I know this person, this is my mother, this is my aunt, this is a person I knew in the Zion
33: Church. Someone who saw that post got in contact with Reether Quinn to share the news. It recognized the name of her mother, Adele Anderson, on the quilt. The most exciting thing for me was to know that some artifact that my mother had been a part of still existed. Quinn, who's in her 90s now, remembers her mother being involved in a sewing circle with other women of the church. She's positive the quilt was made for a fundraiser sometime in the 40s. She found her niche. When the sewing circle started, she was always making something and
1: having us do embroidery.
33: A year after that first post in April of last year, McDowell worked with leaders of the church to bring together people like Quinn to reflect on their close knit community.
11: You know, was, I think we were <laughs> a
33: Quinn called it a reunion of sorts. They remembered the sewing circles, the women who ran them, and how church life wasn't just about church
1: how we were old enough to sneak out of the services and go to the candy store.
33: McDowell says the quilt is more than just a blanket or even a piece of folk art. It's a piece of
31: history. This quilt is a textual document of what was a thriving neighborhood and a thriving relationship amongst
33: those individuals whose names were inscribed on the quilt. Marsha Music is a current member of the congregation she says it's significant the women of the church put their names on the quilt.
11: It was a part of them that wanted to make sure it was
27: known that we made
33: this and it has stood the test of time. McDowell is continuing to dig into the origins of the quilt and its creators and hopes to use recently released census data to learn more. For NPR News, I'm Sophia Salaby in East Lansing.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from EBSCO, committed to making it easy for people to discover and access library resources anytime from anywhere with bibliograph and linked data technology. Learn more at EBSCO.com. And from Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. More at keepersecurity.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, coming up in about 20 minutes here on All Things Considered. Making the best of leftovers. A cookbook author guides us through recipes made from what's hanging out in the backs of our fridges. The clear skies will stick around tonight. We'll get down to about 31 degrees. Tomorrow will be sunny and warmer with temps around 60. Wednesday, we'll have a few clouds move in, but it'll be partly sunny. The high will be in the low 50s. This is WBUR. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9
33: WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: On this 20th anniversary of the US invasion of Iraq, the law authorizing the war is still in effect. Two senators are sponsoring a bill to repeal
28: it. Why would you want to have a live war authorization against a nation that is now a a partner for Mideast stability with the United States?
0: It's Monday, March 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. UN climate scientists issue their latest report detailing how carbon emissions should be slashed in order to prevent the most dire impacts of climate change. Also, House Republicans meet to discuss how to respond to a possible indictment against former President Donald Trump. And making the most out of meal scraps in the back of your fridge, a cookbook author will guide us through some leftovers recipes.
31: Ribolita is the example that I always use. You actually need cheese rinds and cooking liquid from beans and stale bread. It's 501
0: First the News.
5: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Prosecutors in the seditious conspiracy trial against Enrico Tario and other leaders of the Proud Boys have rested their case. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports defense lawyers are expected to call witnesses for the next several days.
19: Assistant U.S. Attorney Nadia Moore has rested on behalf of the prosecution after 40 days and nearly two dozen witnesses. One juror in the long trial made a small noise of surprise at the announcement. Defense lawyers are now putting on their case, arguing Enrique Tarrio and the other Proud Boys had no plan, no agreement, and no implicit understanding to storm the Capitol on January 6, 2021. One defense witness testified the defendants are so disorganized they'd have a hard time putting together a McDonald's order. It's not yet clear whether any of the defendants is likely to testify in the trial. Kerry Johnson, NPR News, Washington.
5: Chinese leader Xi Jinping is in Moscow today where he's holding talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's Xi's first trip to Russia since the war in Ukraine began over a year ago. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken says it is, quote, diplomatic cover for Russia's war crimes. More from NPR's John Rewich.
34: Xi says the trip is a journey of friendship, cooperation, and peace, and upon his arrival, he referred to Putin as a dear friend. China and Russia say their ties have grown stronger over the past year, although the Ukraine invasion put China in an awkward spot. Last month, Beijing published a set of principles for ending the war. Putin was quoted as telling Xi that China's proposals had been closely studied and that there would be an opportunity to discuss the issue. The U.S. and its allies are watching this visit closely. It comes just days after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Putin, accusing him of war crimes. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says if China is committed to ending the war, it should compel Russia to pull back its forces. John Riewicz, NPR News.
5: One of Northern Ireland's largest political parties says it will vote against the updated trade agreement that was negotiated with the European Union. Bill Marks reports the rejection threatens to derail the deal.
6: The Democratic Unionist Party has long expressed concerns about the consequences of Brexit on Northern Ireland's position inside the United Kingdom. Now, DUP leader Jeffrey Donaldson says its legislators will vote against the agreement British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak struck with the European Union. The recent deal was intended to resolve disagreements over goods traded into Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. It grants greater power to Northern Ireland's local legislature to veto new rules introduced by the EU. Donaldson said several, quote, outstanding issues still remain, though his opposition won't necessarily block its implementation. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks in London.
5: Well, it is domino to fall in the troubled banking sector, a deal worked out over the weekend whereby UBS will take over Credit Suisse at the urging of Swiss authorities. Still, it's not entirely over yet, given that UBS shares plunged amid concerns it was simply taking on Credit Suisse's problems. On Wall Street, the Dow jumped up 382 points. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. A public housing development in Boston's North End will get federal money to help with a major renovation project. The $1.7 million will help upgrade the heating and air quality systems at Asonia Homes on Fulton Street. State Senator Lydia Edwards represents the neighborhood. She helped advocate for funding on the federal level.
33: Today is a celebration not just of funding, but also investment in public housing in downtown Boston. It is very important that we don't forget that people of all income levels, of all backgrounds have a home in downtown Boston.
0: The Boston Housing Authority will oversee the upgrades to the housing development. The new federal ownership of the former Silicon Valley Bank will try to sell the bank in two parts. The main bank would be split off from SVB Private. SVB Private used to be Boston Private Bank and Trust. Silicon Valley Bank purchased it in 2021. It caters to higher income customers and nonprofits and has five branches in Massachusetts. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation made the announcement today. It says the new approach is meant to attract more bidders. Boston police say yesterday's St. Patrick's Day parade was relatively peaceful. Police arrested five people, three of them for assault and battery, including one on a police officer. There's an elevated risk for the potential of brush fires in southeastern Massachusetts, the Cape and Islands today. Dave Salino is chief forest fire warden for the State Department of Conservation and Recreation. He says that part of the state didn't get any snow from the recent nor'easter. Trees and bushes are dry and temperatures are warm enough so they will burn.
25: And then we add wind to it, and the winds will push those fires. Um, Any ignitions that we get will push those fires to spread a little bit more rapidly than we might typically be used to on an average day.
0: Salino says the usual source of a fire this time of year is people burning brush in their yards or on their property. He says this year there have already been 60 wildfires in the state. They've destroyed several outbuildings like sheds. Well, this beginning of spring weather will stick around through the next couple of days. Tonight will be mostly clear. We'll have temps in the low 30s. Tomorrow, a boost for the coming crocuses and daffodils. It'll be sunny and temperatures will jump to about 60 degrees. Wednesday looks partly sunny with a high of 53. Then Thursday will likely be wet with the greatest chance of rain in the afternoon. Temperatures will be around 58 on Thursday. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
9: WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. On March 20th, 2003, bombs fell on Baghdad what came to be known as shock and awe. Oh,
19: here's right, here's all right, here's
28: The opening stages of the disarmament of the Iraqi regime have begun. The president will address the nation at
17: 10.15. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, Coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war.
10: It took just three weeks for U.S. forces to reach Baghdad's Firdos Square, where they toppled a statue of Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein. The following month, then-President Bush declared mission accomplished.
17: Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed.
10: Despite early military success and declaring victory, the war in Iraq would rage on. For years,
11: the U.S. military still has a presence in the country today. Weapons of mass destruction, the threat the U.S. government said it was trying to eliminate, they were never found. The intelligence that Bush and his vice president, Dick Cheney, cited to justify the war was revealed to be faulty. By some estimates, the U.S. has spent nearly $2 trillion on the war in Iraq.
10: About 4,500 American troops gave their lives. More than 31,000 were wounded. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqi
11: civilians have been killed. The U.S. could not have waged war in Iraq had it not been for an oblique-sounding congressional bill known as the Authorization for the Use of Military Force. It authorized then-President George W. Bush to send U.S. troops to Iraq. The approval was open-ended, and today, 20 years later, it is still in effect. Well, Virginia Democrat Senator Tim Kaine and Indiana Republican Senator Todd Young are sponsoring a bill to repeal the War Powers Authorization, and last week the Senate voted to move forward with their bill. They join me now. Senator Kaine, Senator Young, welcome to All Things Considered. Great to be with you. Thank you, Mary Lou. Thanks for having us. So I want to point out the legislation that you are sponsoring together covers the 2002 AUMF uh, for Operation Iraqi Freedom, also goes back to the first Gulf War back in 91. Why is it important to revoke them now?
28: Well, the enemy that we waged war against in 1991, the Gulf War, the government of Saddam Hussein, is over. And then that same enemy, the government of Iraq under the leadership of Saddam Hussein, that war ended in 2010 at the latest. And Iraq now is a security partner. So why would you want to have a live war authorization against a nation that is now a partner for Mideast stability with the United States?
11: Senator Young, what do you see as the risk of just leaving this in place? It's been there for 20 years. Why not let it keep rolling on?
35: Well, it's just an invitation to mischief if you maintain these legal authorities on the books. But there's also there's a moral point here, not just legal. Our men and women in uniform have uh, clearly done their duty over the years when the American people have called upon them and Congress has a duty, a legal duty, of course, uh, to declare awards right there in the Constitution, uh, but also uh, a duty to speak to these issues, not just authorizing force and overseeing conduct of a given uh, military operation, but ultimately to bring Uh, conflicts to a close and to deauthorize military force. It's about time the American people know that Congress is firmly dialed into these issues and and prepared to do its duty as well.
11: I hear in both your comments a desire for Congress to reassert itself at the fore of what the U.S. does in military conflicts overseas. Was it a mistake, do you think, Senator Kane, in the first place for Congress to have authorized this power, signed it over to President Bush and, and all of the presidents who followed?
28: Well, presidents tend to overreach, and the framers understood that. And that's why they wrote the Constitution the way they did, that we shouldn't be at war without votes of Congress. But Congress kind of hides under the desk and doesn't exercise the authority they need to. But both Todd and I are strongly of the belief that the framers got it right, that we shouldn't be ordering troops into harm's way if Congress is unwilling to put the thumbprint on it that says, yep, we've debated this in front of the whole public and it's in the national interest. And under those circumstances, yes, you know, go into harm's way to protect the country.
11: Senator Young, as you know, people uh, who are not on board with this bill, opponents of of your measure argue that it would take flexibility away from the president and the Pentagon, flexibility they may need to respond to threats and in real time and quickly, given that Congress in the last few years it is safe to say has not always moved quickly and in anything resembling a unified way. Do you share that concern at all?
35: No, I really don't. This won't impact any of our ongoing military operations. Uh, Almost every legal scholar who looks at how we've narrowly crafted this legislation agrees with that. This uh, would not prevent any future military actions, which may be authorized by Congress. Of course, the president still has his Article Two authorities as commander-in-chief. So to the extent there is an immediate risk of harm to our troops or to our country, he can respond. And uh, he still has authorities to carry on war on terror. So but I I I
11: would say... uh, Please. Yes, please. Oh, I was going to jump in and ask that. I mean, that does prompt the question over whether this is symbolic. As you say, this would not impact current U.S. military operations. The White House agrees with that.
35: This would clearly improve our, our current uh, security posture in the Middle East. Uh, this is why top leaders in, in the current Iraqi government support this effort as a gesture of solidarity and, and partnership with them. After all, we have troops on the ground at the invitation of the Iraqi government right now in a, in a training capacity. And seeing as the war has long been over, it's now time to send a gesture of friendship and solidarity with them that, of course, uh, would tell our adversaries uh, that we stand next to our security partners and are prepared to work with them. <laughs>
11: Let me end with a final thought from each of you. Uh, again, we're speaking on the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion, and I introduced this segment detailing some of the costs of this conflict to the U.S. and to Iraq. Was it worth it? Senator Kane, you
28: first. Uh, I was not in Congress when the Iraq war vote happened, and so I have the benefit of hindsight. Others who were there didn't, but I think it was a mistake, um, and I think it it ended up creating a situation where the removal of the government of Saddam Hussein elevated the power of Iran to do bad things in the region. But I will say this, here's a great thing about our country. We have the capacity, and we've shown it over time, to turn an adversary into a friend. So there's hardly a better ally of the United States than Germany. Japan is a great ally. And the capacity to turn Iraq from an enemy into a friend is a tribute to the magnanimity of both nations. Senator Young. There are many lessons to be
35: learned from our war in Iraq, and I think if we had it to do all over again, uh, we'd do a lot of things differently. We need to learn those lessons as members of Congress. Uh, we need to internalize them and we need to apply them uh, to future circumstances around the world so that we can be held accountable uh, when our men and women have to go into conflict zones uh, to keep us free in the future.
11: Uh, is Republican Senator Todd Young of Indiana and Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. They are co-sponsoring legislation that would revoke the authorization for the use of military force in Iraq. Thanks so much to you both for taking the time
28: to talk it through with us. Great to be with you. Great to be with you today. Thanks.
11: Humans can
10: and must cut climate pollution as quickly as possible. That is the message from the United Nations. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced the release of a major climate science report earlier today.
5: We have never been better equipped to solve the climate challenge, but we must move into warp speed climate action now. We don't have a moment to lose.
10: Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk has more.
34: The
5: report
4: doesn't mince words. The earth is on track for catastrophic warming and world leaders need to slash greenhouse gas emissions immediately. Here's Dr. Hosung Lee, who led the writing of the report.
25: We are walking when we should be sprinting.
4: Here's what sprinting would look like, according to the report. No new power plants that burn coal, oil, or gas. No more subsidies to extract fossil fuels from the ground. Lots of investment in solar and wind, and big changes to how we farm, how and where we build homes, and how we warn people about extreme weather. Patricia Romero-Lencao is a climate scientist at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. She says the main message for world leaders is that there are already lots of practical options to tackle climate change.
6: There are many available cost-effective and affordable solutions to reduce emissions in transport, in industry, in housing, in our daily activities.
4: The new report is really short, just 36 pages, which is the whole point. It's meant to be like a cheat sheet if the first question on the pop quiz for world leaders was, how will you prevent catastrophic climate change? And the second question was, how will you protect your most vulnerable citizens?
6: The poorest and most marginalized communities are the most vulnerable in all cities and in all regions.
4: That includes in the U.S., where poor people, indigenous people, and people of color are more vulnerable to rising seas, to stronger storms, and deadly heat waves. And the report points out that globally, the people who are most at risk don't release a lot of greenhouse gases. Here's Inger Anderson, the head of the UN Environment Program.
36: Climate change is throwing its hardest punches at the most vulnerable communities who bear the least responsibility.
4: The authors stop short of suggesting specific policies to address that inequity. But the clear implication is that richer, more industrialized countries who are responsible for most of the climate pollution need to foot the bill to protect those on the front lines. The details of how that would work were the topic at last year's climate negotiations and will likely be a big focus again at this year's negotiations. Scientists hope this report will help leaders agree on a path forward. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9
0: WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll have the latest on Amazon's layoffs announced today of 9,000
9: workers. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com NSBE.
0: On Wall Street, stocks ended the day up. The Dow gained 1.2 percent, or 383 points. The S&P inched up just under a percentage point. NASDAQ picked up four-tenths of a percent. In other business news, the statewide average price at the gasoline pumps is dropping. AAA Northeast says its latest survey shows the average in Massachusetts at $3.27 a gallon. That's down two cents since last week and down a dollar from this time last year. The lowest average price in the state is in Hampton County at $3.15 a gallon. This is WBUR.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, honoring community heroes and service professionals during their first responder deal days. Now through March 22nd, OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your
11: old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org.
0: Well, we are just about five minutes from the official start of spring, and it looks like the weather is cooperating. The clear skies will stick around tonight. The low will be around 31 degrees. Then tomorrow looks picturesque. We'll have sunny skies with a high around 60 degrees. Wednesday should be partly sunny with temps in the 50s, and then it looks like some rain will move in for Thursday with temperatures in the 50s once again. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston at 520. Support for NPR
20: comes from this station, and from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at RemotePC.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at BankofAmerica.com slash BankingForBusiness. And from listeners like you who donate to
10: this NPR station. This is All Things Considered
11: from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Potato peels, a mostly empty jar of peanut butter, salty crumbs at the bottom of a container of nuts, These were among the ingredients we assembled recently in a kitchen in the Washington suburbs for a cooking session with Tamar Adler, who has a new cookbook out. It's called The Everlasting Meal Cookbook, and as you may have guessed, it's a bit unusual. It is essentially an encyclopedia on the subject of leftovers, which Adler knows is a tough sell. I've
31: even noticed that when I originally say it to people now, they often make a grossed-out face. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a common, you know, I'm like, it's so, yeah, so it's like what you do with your rotten tomatoes and your dry bread and like there's visible disgust.
11: But Tamar Adler's book is an argument that leftovers don't have to be disgusting or even disappointing. They can actually become better than they were when they went into your fridge. So many of our favorite dishes are actually only producible if
31: you have, you know, what's left. Like ribolita is the example that I always use but there are so many other classic
11: Italian rustic soup yeah
31: yeah which you need you actually need you know cheese rinds and um that the cooking liquid from beans and stale bread um but fried rice which I feel like everybody loves um is another perfect example where you can't you can't fry fresh rice you need dry leftover rice and then with this book, I really wondered whether one could like take the traditional recipe format for anybody who's used to using a recipe, but still learning how to look at an ingredient and meet it where it is. There's like this kind of like intermediate step of having a traditional recipe, but having it start with whatever leftover thing.
11: Um, I want to throw in an example of how far you take this. Um, one ingredient that is often in my fridge and then I think why did I even bother to refrigerate this thing salad and I've dressed it the night before and there's like a few handfuls left of really soggy wilted lettuce you have not one but five ideas did you brainstorm those or is this stuff you were actually doing and then you're like I
31: should share these ideas there's one for I, I think a gazpacho type thing that I had already done um, but for the same reason that I was like, why do I always do this? You can't throw it out though, and also you with, could, you could, you could. No, but <laughs> it's like, been they, done in it's my emotionally house. Emotionally hard because especially if you've bought whole heads of lettuce, there's so much labor in there. You've, you know, you've cut the leaves off of the head, you've washed them, you've dried them. If you've done all that and then you've made dressing and then you've dressed it and like maybe you've bought good, beautiful, organic, you know, special lettuce, you don't want to throw it out. You're like, I put a lot into this. So I think the gazpacho recipe came of my just I
11: didn't want my labor to disappear. You, you had have, another one you can that like really finely chop it up and throw it into a savory pancake. Like a, oh, I was imagining yeah. like a potato pancake with my leftover lettuce and thinking, yeah, actually, yeah, I
19: could, that
31: might totally be good. delicious. And any kind of you could do it. I have a cornmeal batter that it's great in. If you do a very very simple cornmeal pancake batter and then put finely chopped um, lettuce or salad in that, it's great. Um, and but then other ones I I. I try, you know, I would. I wanted there to be a number of recipes because it's so unlikely. And out of dressed lettuce, there's a recipe for a. I think I call it a green sauce base, and it's so amazing. And it could be. It becomes a vinaigrette. This is essentially pureed dressed lettuce with more vinegar and salt and maybe olive oil. When you add more vinaigrette ingredients to it. It becomes so good that the, the day I made it, I brought it to a dinner party and everybody there was like, this salad dressing is so amazing. I was like, that salad dressing was made yesterday's of salad. salad. <laughs> yeah. It was like it was like the mother and child reunion from the Paul Simon song.
11: Do you find yourself intentionally cooking more so that you will have leftovers? Oh yeah. I mean even when it's just, you know, the,
31: the three of us in my family I will always cook a whole chicken. I don't cook one head of broccoli. I cook like two to three heads of broccoli and then use them over days. And if I think of it as like it's on the path, it's always on some arc toward a dish, then it looks different when I take it out. Also, it doesn't look like a leftover from Monday. It looks like, who are you today on Tuesday?
11: And with that, we get to cooking.
31: Should we do the empty nut butter noodles? Let's do
11: it. Okay. This is where that empty peanut butter jar comes in. To the untrained eye, it is empty, but in fact, it has just enough peanut butter clinging to its sides and bottom to provide the base for the sauce that we're about to make. Into the jar goes a quarter cup boiling water. This is the technical
19: part,
31: so let me close it up and shake it.
11: Highly technical.
31: Highly technical. Culinary school. You can see it starts, to come the, it starts to come off the sides. Yep. Kind of light brown <laughs> light <laughs> peanut brown butter water. Sludge. Let's stir it. At, at one point, I talked about um, wanting to change the name of my book from The Everlasting Meal Cookbook to um, Beautiful Brown Food because, it, I mean, if you're going to get into this sort of evolution of food mindset, you have to embrace tan. <laughs>
11: Now, the whole sauce, it's made right in this jar. So in goes a clove of garlic mashed with a pinch of salt. Also, the juice from one lime, which we forgot to have ready. But remember, the name of the game here is use what you have. This is like super everlasting meal cookbook because we're gonna use a lemon. Citrus substitution.
31: Citrus substitution.
11: Plus a quarter cup fish sauce, a tablespoon of sugar, Then a chili, fresh or dried, whatever you've got. So what are we working with here? This looks like a jalapeno.
31: How's your spice tolerance? Oh yeah. Yeah? I love spice. I'm gonna leave those in then.
11: Okay. If you don't love spice, then you would take out the seeds. Now a final shake. And it's ready to toss with a pound of cooked rice noodles, whatever herbs you have around. We used basil and cilantro and julienned cucumbers, or in our case, carrots, or really anything. It could be just
31: the noodles. It's it's really not about what it's supposed to be at the end. It's about what you have and how much time and patience you have
11: to get to the meal. Then out come the bowls. Should we try it? Here we go. They're really good, right? They're totally flavorful. Mm-hmm. They don't taste like your empty peanut butter jar. And this is the message that Tamar Adler is yeah. evangelizing. That what was once good can be good again in a new way. And that you can transform it. We all have stale bread. I mean, I I feel like there's always
31: one bendy stalk of celery in every fridge. If there isn't, it like repopulates itself.
11: Start with what you have, she says. Keep your skepticism in your pocket, stay open. I think once you start, things seem more promising. Tamar Adler's new book is The Everlasting Meal Cookbook, Leftovers A to Z. Find the recipe for empty nut butter jar noodles on our website, npr.org. Plus another literally scrappy dish, scallions and cheese on top of crispy potato peels.
31: They're definitely what you would, you know, they're like generally treated as animal food or garbage or compost. So we're going to roast them.
17: This is NPR
3: News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, we'll hear from four people who witnessed the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which started 20 years ago today. Well, spring has officially sprung as of about five minutes ago. The clear skies will stick around tonight. We'll get down to the low 30s. Tomorrow, the first full day of spring will be sunny and warmer, with temps approaching 60. Wednesday, we'll have a few clouds move in, but it'll still be partly sunny. The high will be around 53
11: degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com.
23: I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston.
11: And if your day is as
23: hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston, you can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today.
24: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump are asking a court to essentially throw out a months-long investigation To election interference in Georgia. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, Stephen Fowler reports Trump's attorneys also want to disqualify the DA
5: from further investigation. In a nearly 500-page filing, Trump's attorneys attacked Democratic DA Fonnie Willis, argued public comments from jurors would taint future cases, and said the entire special purpose grand jury process was unconstitutional. Trump was never asked to appear before the body, and it's not clear if he's facing charges in the probe. But as lawyers say that none of the evidence compiled during the eight-month inquiry should be used to prosecute anyone, the DA should be disqualified from further investigation, and a non-binding report, which has partially been released, should be kept under wraps and struck from the record. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta.
24: Twenty years ago today, the U.S. invaded Iraq. As massive numbers of airstrikes and cruise missiles struck Baghdad before troops entered the Iraqi capital, NPR's Ruth Sherlock tells us the country's then-dictator, Saddam Hussein, was quickly unseated, but what followed was years of bloodshed.
13: In Baghdad today, there are no celebrations or protests. For many, it's a muted, even sad day. After the invasion, Iraq suffered from sectarian wars and governments that were plagued by corruption. Some Iraqis tell me they'll use today to reflect on the loved ones they've lost these past two
24: decades. That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock. An estimated 300,000 Iraqis were killed in the fighting over a 20-year period before U.S. troops pulled out of the region. On Wall Street, stocks uh, finished mixed, actually, today. No, actually, uh, stocks finished higher across the board after uh, last week's financial situation with banks. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. A new report from a U.N. panel on climate change is calling for cities to focus on development that's climate resilient. That means building in a way that reduces emissions and protects people from climate dangers like flooding and rapid sea level rise. Rachel Cletus is with the Cambridge-based Union of Concerned Scientists.
7: So making sure that as we're developing our coastline here in Boston, we're thinking about that sea level rise that's accelerating and building in a climate resilient fashion, not just the big high priced real estate, but every community.
0: The report says the world must cut greenhouse gas emissions in half by the end of the decade to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Boaters in Cape Cod Bay are being reminded to slow down and watch out. The warning comes after the first North Atlantic right whale mother and calf sighting of the season. Members of the Center for Coastal Studies spotted the whales on Saturday. There are only about 340 of the endangered animals left in the world. Boats in Cape Cod Bay are restricted to speeds of 10 knots, or about 11 miles an hour. The restriction is meant to protect the whales from being hit and injured by boats. While spring is officially here, it started about 10 minutes ago at 524. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says winter was relatively mild in the Boston area.
8: Well, we got off pretty easy this winter overall. Above average temperatures resulted in Boston, ranking as the fifth warmest winter since records have been kept. In terms of snow, we've had just over a foot, 12.4 inches to be exact, and a normal year brings us just over 49 inches. So that was a significant deficit. Feet of snow inland and in the mountains from the last nor'easter means an increased risk of spring flooding in these areas. And above average temperatures are forecast to continue this spring. Expect lots of things blooming in the weeks to come, and a big increase in the number of of ticks too. Boston now has just over 12 hours of daylight. Our longest
0: day of the year will be on June 20th with 15 hours and 17 minutes of daylight. It's 534.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. We'll have mostly
0: clear skies tonight with a low around 31 degrees. Tomorrow looks gorgeous for the first full day of spring. It'll be sunny and temps will get to about 60. Wednesday should be partly sunny with temps in the low 50s. And then Thursday will likely be rainy by afternoon. The high on Thursday will be in the upper 50s. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this
10: NPR station,
11: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
10: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. House Republicans are meeting at a retreat in Orlando, Florida this week. They had planned to showcase their agenda now that they're in the majority. But former President Trump is dominating the conversation. Manhattan's district attorney is considering charging Trump in connection with hush money paid to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Now, there has been no official announcement of any plans for an indictment but Trump claims that he will be arrested as early as Tuesday. NPR National Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson in Washington, D.C. and Congressional Correspondent Deirdre Walsh in Orlando join us now to discuss the latest. Hey to both of you. Hey there. Hey there. All right, Carrie, let's start with you can just bring us up to speed here. Why is Trump making this claim that, that he could be indicted this week?
19: Well, we know that District Attorney Alvin Bragg has been looking into whether Trump broke the law by paying hush money to Stormy Daniels. She claims she had an affair with Trump years ago, and Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, paid her $130,000 in exchange for her silence during a key moment in his 2016 presidential campaign. Cohen ultimately pleaded guilty to federal charges. Now this New York grand jury is examining how he was reimbursed and if that method may have violated the law. If Donald Trump directed Michael Cohen to set up those payments, it means Trump might be held responsible for making false records. And Trump, we know, was invited to testify before this grand jury. That's usually the final step before any kind of indictment. But it's really up to the grand jurors and Alvin Bragg about whether they're going to press ahead with those charges. Right. Okay. And
10: Deirdre, what's the view from Orlando? Like how are House Republicans reacting to Trump's claim that he will be indicted?
13: They're really largely coming to Trump's defense. Uh, A lot of Republicans here are slamming Bragg's probe. They say it's politically motivated. Like you said, Elsa, they had come to this retreat in Florida hoping to talk about their first three months running the House, controlling the House, and their plans to pass other legislation this year on things like border security and the fentanyl crisis. But the dynamic that was in place when Trump was in the White House is again at play here. His move to claim on social media he was going to be arrested and to urge his supporters to protest thrust this issue front and center. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy fielded several questions about Trump last night at the kickoff press conference here. He did argue that any indictment from Bragg wouldn't stand up in court and again called it all politically motivated. But McCarthy did break with the former president over Trump's message to his supporters that they should protest. The speaker disagreed when he was asked about that.
18: I don't think people should protest this, no.
13: He's not talking in a
18: harmful way, and nobody should. Nobody should harm one another.
10: And I understand, Deirdre, that House Republicans have launched their own probe of the Manhattan D.A.?
13: That's right. Three committee chairmen today uh, launched their own investigation. Jim Jordan of Judiciary, Jim Comer of Oversight, and Brian Stile of the House Administration Committee sent a joint letter to Bragg today demanding documents and testimony. They argued in this letter that any indictment in this case was basically an unprecedented abuse of his authority, and they said it would interfere in the 2024 presidential election. Chairman Jordan just spoke to reporters a little bit ago and called the investigation a sham, and he says he wants to know if there are any federal funds involved in Bragg's probe. They're asking Bragg to appear before a House panel as soon as possible, and they gave him a Thursday deadline to respond.
10: Wow. Okay, so Carrie, are they likely to get what they want here? That is... Actual testimony from Bragg while he is still investigating the former president.
19: Uh, They shouldn't hold their breath, Elsa. Uh, It's unlikely Bragg or the grand jury would want to share any details at this very sensitive stage. And we do have some precedent for this. Congress has been demanding details from the U.S. Justice Department about its probe of the president's son, Hunter Biden. DOJ has basically told lawmakers they balance oversight requests from the Hill against the interest of protecting the investigation And in its integrity, DOJ won't confirm or deny pending investigations or provide any non-public information to Congress about them. So I don't think they're going to get very much out of Alvin Bragg either.
10: Yeah. Well, Deirdre, let me ask you, what do you think this whole episode tells us about Trump's political standing right now in the Republican Party?
13: I think just the rush from all corners of the House Republican Conference to defend Trump just shows he's the dominant figure in the party. There was a really interesting moment today when Florida Republican Marco, Mario Diaz-Balart was asked about Trump's place in the party.
9: Obviously, we have, I have great respect for the former uh, president of the United States. Um, but uh, as far as you know, who the leader of the party is, I will tell you right now, I, I, I think the leader of the party is, is the Speaker of the House.
13: But other Trump supporters are warning if Republicans don't stand <laughs> with Trump, voters will backlash. They will hear backlash from voters.
10: That is NPR's Deirdre Walsh and Carrie Johnson. Thank you to both of you.
13: Thank you. Thanks. Another week,
11: another mass layoff announcement from the tech sector. In a memo to employees today, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy said the company is cutting another 9,000 jobs. NPR's Andrea Shu reports, and we will note that Amazon is among NPR supporters and pays to distribute some of our content.
26: Andy Jassy first forecast that layoffs were coming to Amazon last fall. The company had grown rapidly in the pandemic as demand for online services soared. Its overall headcount doubled in size from 2019 to 2021 to 1.6 million. But things started to change a lot. Here was Jassy at the New York Times Dealbook Summit last November, looking back at a wild 2022.
36: It looked like we were coming out of the pandemic and, and then... Omicron happened and the war in Ukraine happened and the inflationary environment that we're in happened and, you know, now a very uncertain economy.
26: Sure enough, just after the new year, Jesse announced Amazon was eliminating 18,000 positions. And today, he said 9,000 more would be cut over the next few weeks. The cuts are not in warehouses. They're hitting Amazon's corporate side hard, its cloud computing division known as Amazon Web Services, its advertising and people teams, and Twitch, its video game streaming platform.
6: This announcement is not a surprise. It seemed like it was just a matter of time before we heard of additional layoffs.
26: Arun Sundaram is an analyst with the investment research firm CFRA. He says there could yet be more layoffs at Amazon and elsewhere in tech later this year. It'll really depend, he says, on what's happening more broadly with the economy.
36: From the beginning of this year to today, I think there is a lot more
6: volatility. We've heard of what's happening to the banking sector right now. And I think that raises the risk
36: of a recession this year.
26: And so he says big tech is playing it safe, reigning in spending. Amazon is far from alone in announcing mass layoffs. Google, Microsoft and Salesforce have collectively shed tens of thousands of jobs since January. Last week, Facebook's parent company Meta announced its second round of cuts, with CEO Mark Zuckerberg calling 2023 the year of efficiency. In his note to employees today, Andy Jassy said Amazon would still be doing some limited hiring in strategic areas. One of those areas, Sundaram said, could be healthcare.
36: About a month ago, they
6: closed on one medical. It seems like they're still tr- continuing to invest in that healthcare space and really trying to disrupt that area.
26: He says the strategy now appears to be more selective, finding areas that can profitably grow rather than growing the company at all costs. Andrea Shu, in PR News.
20: Support for All Tech Considered comes from BetterHelp. Committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or
10: phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News. China's leader Xi Jinping landed in Moscow today on what he called a journey of friendship, cooperation and peace. The trip comes hot on the heels of China's surprising assist with Iran and Saudi Arabia, helping the two rivals reestablish diplomatic relations after a 7-year pause, and that has got some wondering if she can repeat the trick with Russia and Ukraine. NPR's and John Ruwitch takes a look.
34: Four years ago, when she was last in Moscow, he and Russian President Vladimir Putin visited pandas in a zoo, made pancakes topped with caviar, and toasted each other with vodka. This time, the backdrop is a bit graver. The Russian army is bogged down in Ukraine, Putin is isolated by Western powers, and the International Criminal Court issued a warrant last week for his arrest for war crimes. For Xi Jinping, though, the trip is worth it, says Rana Mitter, a professor of Chinese history and politics at the University of Oxford. My sense is that Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow in the short term has very little downside for Xi. That's because Beijing has fostered the perception that this visit is not only about deepening ties with Russia in the face of U.S. pressure. China also says it wants to see peace in Ukraine and stands ready to help make that happen. Last month, the government issued a 12-point position paper that laid out broad principles for winding down hostilities. And then in early March? That's Chinese state TV trumpeting the Iran-Saudi deal. It surprised a lot of people and showed Beijing taking rare initiative to advance diplomacy in another part of the world. Rana Mitter again. The mood has been set framework has been said. The idea of China potentially as the peacemaker that goes where other countries can't has been said. But the actual solution, he's talking about the Ukraine crisis here, still looks in some ways much, much more vague, much more fluid. Still, it's clever diplomacy by Xi, says Paul Hanley with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, especially with expectations of a conversation between Xi and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to follow the Moscow visit.
17: So He can still position himself as playing an important role, in a sense, shuttle diplomacy, going from one place to the other. And now his trip to Moscow to meet with Putin looks very different, and he will get less international criticism for it.
34: Hanley says he's not optimistic about China brokering a breakthrough on Ukraine. That's based on his experience at the National Security Council during talks on North Korea's nuclear program over a decade ago.
17: Our greatest frustration in the six-party talks was when North Korea would come in with a position that was nowhere in the universe of anything that was reasonable. And we were frustrated China would not put pressure on North Korea or twist North Korea's arm to say, look, you've got to get in a better position.
34: And he doesn't see Xi putting pressure on Putin. If the Russian leader shows interest in finding a resolution to the Ukraine conflict, she can work with that. If not, she can at least say he tried. Sun Yun, with the Stimson Center think tank in Washington, D.C., says Xi's trip will mostly focus on China-Russia bilateral ties. They've blossomed in the past year. And as for the Ukraine conflict?
26: China doesn't see this war as China's war, and China doesn't see the ending of the war as China's responsibility.
34: But, she says, as a rival of the U.S. and a neighbor of Russia, China could not afford to be silent. John Ruich, NPR News.
11: It's All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Good evening. Coming up at 6 on All Things Considered, up to 18 million Americans may soon lose their Medicaid coverage, but might not realize it. We'll tell you about the change that's slated for the end of March. While this beginning of spring weather will stick around through the next couple of days, tonight will be mostly clear we'll have temps in the low 30s tomorrow looks sunny and warm and picturesque. We'll have temperatures around 60 degrees and then Wednesday looks partly sunny with a high around 53. Thursday looks like some rain will move in especially in the afternoon. Temperatures Thursday will be around 58. Right now it's still 52 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
16: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th semesteroff.com and Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com.
23: I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, mental health care mandated by a court. Massachusetts is one of only three states where a judge can't mandate outpatient mental health care. Should they be able to? From the newsroom, reporter Deborah Becker takes us into the debate. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
10: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today marks two decades since the U.S. invasion and later occupation of Iraq. For the people who were there, the memories and the consequences of that action are alive 20 years on.
37: My name is Mohammed Dulaimi. I was living in Fallujah. I was an engineering student. At the beginning of the war, With all the confusion that was happening, it was the first time in my life, I made a lie and I lied to a child. There is a shooting on the highway in Fallujah that resulted in many deaths of civilians. And I saw what I've never thought I would see in my life, so many cars shot so many people lying on the side of the street. One of the cars was a pickup truck. Father was on driver's seat. He was killed. The mother was in passenger seat. She was killed and a kid, I think he was 10 years old. They took him out of the car. They laid him on the side. His back was to the car. He cannot see his mom and dad and his injury was severe and he refused to go to hospital. He said, I don't want to live if my father and mother are dead. And he was holding my hand in such a force. It was amazing for me how a 10 year old can do that. And he said, please, I don't want to be an orphan. If they are dead, let me die. And that was my first lie in my life. I was like, no, you're going to be okay. i going to take you to hospital. And he said, swear by God, they are alive. And I did. It changed my life in so many ways. And whenever someone is talking about life, I remember that kid who held my hand and said, swear by God, that my life will be okay and I will not live an orphan.
32: My name is Kayla Williams, and I was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division Air Assault as an Arabic linguist. When we were first there, the people who were willing to come up and talk to me as a woman in the U.S. Army, they all wanted to tell me how they had suffered under Saddam Hussein and their hopefulness for the future. And I was there when that started to turn and to curdle as we were unable to provide security, unable to keep the electricity on. Years later, some folks called it man on the moon syndrome. You Americans could put a man on the moon. What do you mean you can't do X, Y, or Z here in Iraq? And you could see the anger starting to come. You could see the rage. You could see people losing their hope and getting more and more frustrated and shooting at us. And at that point, when people I knew were getting getting hurt, I, at least, am not mature enough to have been able to not get angry. It's really hard to keep an open heart towards people who are trying to kill you. So, you know, I think that curdling was happening on both sides. And that took some time after coming home for that sense of of empathy to return. And thinking back to. How young, how young everyone was and what we ask of people who are barely adults is uh, kind of shocking today.
36: Hi, my name is Ali Adib Al-Naimi. When the war started, I was working as a translator in a contracting company. I had this perception that Americans were always ready, you know, the biggest country in the world, the superpower. And what shocked me actually was the lack of preparation. I remember how devastated I was as an Iraqi because of the looting of the National Museum. As you know, Iraq is the land of Mesopotamia and we have antiquities and we have a civilization that goes back 6,000 to 7,000 years. The museum was without any kind of protection for days. While troops were protecting other facilities in Baghdad buildings like the oil ministry, imagine the metropolitan in New York open for looters for two or three days. Imagine how devastated you would be as an American citizen. On TV, I remember seeing Donald Rumsfeld saying that the American army is not a police force, you know, it's, it's not our job. To me, that was shocking. To just let it go in the hands of routers, to me, that was uh, even more than painful, I would say. It's a disaster to the memory of a nation. My name is Carlos Gomez Perez. I was in the Marine Corps, Echo Company, Second Italian First Marines. In 2003, I already had a son. So even though I was only 21, I was in Iraq, and I remember going to different houses doing door-to-door checks, and literally they were handing me babies. Like, please, Mister, Mister, take her, take her. My child's back home, and you're giving me your kid so that I can take him to somewhere better. Replaying in my mind is that, and no one prepared us for that. We didn't know how to deal with it. And no one discusses, because it's not, it's not fun to talk about those experiences that you have to live with the rest of your life. Those
11: are the stories we heard when we called people and said, tell me about your war in Iraq. The U.S. invaded 20 years ago today. Muhammad Delamy is now an engineer in Virginia. Kayla Williams, the
10: U.S. Army interpreter, is a senior policy researcher with the RAND Corporation.
11: Interpreter Ali Al-Naimi lives in New York City, where he teaches journalism at NYU.
10: And Marine Lance Corporal Carlos Gomez Perez was awarded the Silver Star for Valor in combat. He now lives in San Diego and is currently unemployed.
11: NPR will continue to bring stories of the Iraq War throughout this week. On tomorrow's morning edition, Abu Ghraib Prison, where photos of the American military abusing detainees shocked the world, we'll meet one man who says he's only half-human 20 years later. To hear that firsthand account, turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR.
10: Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from EBSCO, currently hiring and committed to letting people thrive, Information about hybrid and remote positions is at careers.ebsco.com. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered. The Navajo Nation says it isn't getting the water the federal government is supposed to deliver from the Colorado River. The case is raising questions about overall use of the river. Coming to City Space Tuesday, April 4th, Olympian and long-distance runner Kara Goucher, she'll discuss her new memoir on one of the biggest scandals in running history. Tickets at WBUR.org uh, slash events. slash slash events. It's 52 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, rewarding community heroes during their first responder days, now through March 22nd. For details, visit OceanStateJobLot.com.
12: I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A pandemic era
0: Medicaid rule is about to end, but millions of Americans who could lose coverage might not realize it.
1: We fully expect in April for people to call us from the pharmacy, that's often where they learn that, oh, my Medicaid doesn't work.
0: It's Monday, March 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a battle between a tribal nation and the federal government over river water. And the for-profit Bay State College in Boston loses its accreditation and has to shut down. At 6.30 on Marketplace, the crisis of confidence around banks. Many are having to reassure their customers that they have the cash to keep them whole.
1: They don't want people to watch on the news and see one or two or three banks failing and think, my money isn't safe in banks, I need to go take it out and put it under my mattress or
0: whatever. It's 6.01, the news is first.
5: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is issuing the first veto of his presidency. As NPR's Tamara Keith explains, he rejected a bill that would have restricted the ability of pension fund managers to invest based on environmental, social and corporate governance factors.
33: In a message sent back to Congress, Biden said plan managers should be able to consider any factor that maximizes financial returns for retirees. Considering environmental, social and corporate governance factors has become popular among large fund managers and their clients in recent years, but some Republicans deride it as woke investing. Biden described these as relevant risk factors that managers should be able to consider. This veto comes after two Senate Democrats from red states joined Republicans in passing the legislation. The measure passed so narrowly, it is highly unlikely Congress would be able to override the veto. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House.
5: West Virginia Governor Jim Justice says state and federal authorities are investigating a string of allegations of wrongdoing within the state police, and the colonel who had been leading the force has resigned. As NPR's Dave Mistich reports the probe was triggered by an anonymous letter sent to a number of state officials.
22: In one incident, Governor Jim Justice says a state police trooper allegedly took money a patron left behind at a casino. In another, a trooper was involved in a death along an interstate. A camera was also placed in the women's locker room at state police headquarters. Governor Justice says the trooper responsible died while on a running track. A USB thumb drive containing evidence was found. But the governor says other West Virginia state troopers stomped the thumb drive.
2: Our police destroyed evidence. We need to get to the bottom, bottom of
22: that. Officials with the governor's administration say some aspects of the investigation into the state police have been closed, while others remain ongoing. Dave Mistich, NPR News, Morgantown, West Virginia.
5: Secretary of State Antony Blinken is calling for accountability in Ethiopia's ongoing civil war, where he accuses both sides of committing war crimes. He's just back from a trip there as NPR's Michelle Kalman reports.
8: Secretary Blinken says his team reviewed the law and the facts and determined that war crimes were committed by members of the Ethiopian National Defense Force and rebels in Tigray, along with forces the government brought into the Tigray conflict from the Amhara region and from Eritrea.
28: As I
6: discussed with both sides during my visit, to build a durable peace there must be acknowledgement of the atrocities committed by all parties, as well as accountability together with reconciliation.
8: He says a ceasefire has saved lives, but adds that doesn't erase what happened over the past couple of years in northern Ethiopia. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
5: The U.S. financial markets gained ground today despite turmoil in the banking sector. The Dow is up 382 points. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lynn Joliker. Bay State College in Boston will close its doors this summer. Today, the school officially lost its accreditation from the New England Commission of Higher Education, which rejected an appeal from the college to continue operating. WBUR's Max Larkin has more.
27: So this represents kind of a devastating, if not unexpected, blow to Bay State College. Certainly the college has been struggling with its finances for years, and accreditors didn't seem to like that they put too rosy a picture on their money situation as well as their enrollment projections. So this represents a creditor's final step, kind of laying the path for the college to either graduate its remaining students or see them transfer to other schools by the end of August.
0: Bay State College says it's disappointed by the decision and will soon share more information on how it'll help students find new schools. Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo wants to ban the sale of nips in Boston. Those are miniature bottles of alcohol. Critics say the bottles contribute to massive amounts of litter, public intoxication, and other alcohol-related incidents. On Wednesday, Arroyo will ask the full city council for a hearing on his proposal. Other nearby cities, including Chelsea and Newton, already ban the sale of NIPS. As it warms up, you should be on the lookout for ticks. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says a tick-borne disease called babesiosis is now regularly occurring in New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont. That was already the case in Massachusetts. The disease causes flu-like symptoms that can turn into lung infections if untreated. Edouard Venier studies the disease at Tufts Medical Center. He says the illness spreads when it's warm.
34: The spread of disease might have been accelerated by warmer temperature. So there is possibly an impact of climate change on this uh, spread northward.
0: Vanier says wearing long pants outdoors reduces the exposure. Tick repellents and showering after hikes are also effective. Well, taking a look at the forecast, the clear skies will stick around tonight. We'll get down to about 31 degrees. Tomorrow will be sunny and warmer with temps approaching 60. And then Wednesday, we'll have a few more clouds move in. It'll be partly sunny with a high about 52. This is 90.9 WBUR.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
11: I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. As many as 18 million Americans could lose their health insurance over the coming months, and many don't even realize it. That is because a federal rule that protected people's Medicaid coverage during the pandemic expires at the end of March, NPR's Maria Godoy
12: reports. Before the pandemic, people often got dropped from Medicaid, not just when they were no longer eligible but because keeping your coverage involves a lot of red tape. It's a big hassle. So when Congress passed a law back in 2020 that barred states from dropping Medicaid recipients, Catherine Bamberger of Southeast Healthcare in Ohio says that was a relief for many low-income people.
1: That's been really huge because you don't want to find out that you don't have your Medicaid when you're in the emergency room, and especially
12: during a pandemic. But that protection expires March 31st, which means people will once again have to provide documentation to stay on Medicaid. Stephanie Jorgensen is a 33-year-old single mother of two in Columbus, Ohio. She says the process can be incredibly frustrating.
4: Gathering all of the verifications is like the most stressful part. It's a job. She spent
12: much of her career working in social services nonprofits.
4: I'm like, the encyclopedia of social services to a lot of my friends.
12: Jorgensen is also on Medicaid, and she says even with all her expertise, it's a ton of work to navigate the system.
33: I have a master's, and it's still like a
12: fight every step of the way. For example, she has to provide documentation that she no longer works at a nonprofit job she left more than a decade ago. That nonprofit doesn't even exist anymore.
4: So I can't even get a verification from them stating that you know, that they
14: don't
12: exist. Still, Jorgensen is relatively lucky. At least she knows she has to renew her Medicaid soon. A recent survey from the Urban Institute found that nationwide, the majority of Americans enrolled in Medicaid don't know they'll need to act to keep their coverage. Catherine Bamberger of Southeast Healthcare says the reality is many people won't realize they've lost Medicaid coverage until they actually need it.
1: We fully expect in April for people to call us from the pharmacy. That's often where they learn that, oh, my Medicaid
12: doesn't work. Ohio has already started sending out renewal packets. At least 200,000 people in the state are expected to lose coverage starting in April. But that's just the people who will no longer be eligible. Many others who are eligible will nonetheless be dropped for Medicaid because the state can't reach them.
1: You've got a disproportionate number of people here who are not computer literate and whose housing is unstable.
12: Many people have moved since the last time they had to renew their Medicaid three years ago so they may not get their renewal notice. Samuel Camacho is a health insurance navigator with the Universal Healthcare Action Network of Ohio. He says language is another major barrier.
14: Most individuals are going to be vulnerable because of their lack of English. So they may receive a letter, but they can't read it.
12: Camacho helps Spanish speakers in the Columbus, Ohio region with their Medicaid paperwork. He says the process has gotten much harder because the local Medicaid offices have been closed to the public since the pandemic.
14: Before the pandemic, individuals were able to go to the offices with an interpreter and have conversations with their case managers, print documents, find documents in their language, have interactions with people, even other Medicaid recipients. We've lost that.
12: And he says that kind of word of mouth is really important for his community.
14: Latinos, we're a group that thrives on communication. Abuelita le dijo a Titi, Titi le dijo al primo y el primo me lo dijo a mí. So we're losing that.
12: Nowadays, Camacho helps Spanish speakers, often mothers, with Medicaid enrollment over the phone or at public libraries. He says the process generally takes two hours, but that's just the start of it. He says he often has to interpret when the state sends requests for more documentation.
14: You know, the bill that you send was under your husband's name, but it needs to be under both of your names. Little details. And if those details are not taken care of... You're denied.
12: He says in his experience, those denials happen more often than not. And even though they're usually overturned on appeal.
14: It's the heartache of having to do it again and again and again. Makes no sense.
12: As frustrating as it can be, Camacho says he wants to make sure people on Medicaid know this. Todos en Medicaid tendrán que volver a inscribirse. Everyone on Medicaid will have to re-enroll. Maria Godoy, NPR News. All right, we're going to bring you an update now about a closely watched
10: immigration case, one that is deeply intertwined with the debate over asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. The woman at the center of this case fled El Salvador after her ex-husband threatened her life. And now, almost a decade later, she is finally reuniting with her children in the U.S. NPR's Joel Rose has been covering this case through many twists and turns and has this exclusive. Hey, Joel. Hey, Elsa. So before you take us to this reunion, can you just talk about why this case is so important? I mean, not just to the family involved here, but to other asylum seekers.
15: Sure. Basically, it is because the Trump administration tried to use this case as part of its crackdown on asylum at the border, in particular for survivors of domestic violence and gender-based violence. This woman was identified in court papers as Miss A.B. She fled El Salvador to get away from her abusive ex-husband, made her way to the U.S., and crossed the border illegally into Texas and asked for asylum. And for a moment, it seemed like she had won in immigration court until then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions intervened in her case, seemingly out of nowhere, and used it to set a precedent that domestic violence should generally not be grounds for asylum. And then what happened? Well, her lawyers kept fighting the case, and the election of 2020 happened. Attorney General Merrick Garland came into office and overturned that precedent, clearing the way for this woman to finally get asylum. She petitioned for her children to join her in the U.S., And that is what finally brought both of us to the airport in Atlanta a few days
7: ago.
15: She is excited and nervous, she says, wearing a white cardigan sweater with her dark straight hair pulled back in a ponytail. Up until now, we've called her by her initials, Miss A.B. For this story, she says we can use her first name, Annabelle, but only her first name, because she's still worried about her abusive ex-husband finding her all these years later. How long has it been since you have seen your children? It's been eight years since Annabelle left El Salvador after years of brutal abuse, without saying goodbye to her kids in person. We first met five years ago, when then-Attorney General Sessions had just intervened in her case. At that time, it was very sad, very hard, she says, not knowing what was going to happen with my kids. She hasn't seen her sons since they were teenagers, and she's never met her two grandchildren except on video screens. Now we're waiting at the international terminal in Atlanta for all of them two sons, a daughter, and two grandkids. And already, Annabelle is crying tears of joy. Because I don't know them, she says, and I finally get to know them.
0: This is what the asylum system was intended for, you know, for somebody whose life is at risk.
15: Blaine Bookie is one of Annabelle's lawyers at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at the UC College of the Law, San Francisco. For Bookie, this moment is bittersweet because it should have happened years ago.
0: It shouldn't be this hard, you know, and just the games that we're playing with people's lives like hers. um, You know, they should have the opportunity to find safety and to reunify with their children.
15: There's another reason this reunion is bittersweet for immigrant advocates. It comes just as the Biden administration is considering new rules that would make it harder to get asylum.
17: Do not, do not just show up
15: at the border. Critics have complained for years that migrants are exploiting the asylum system. Immigration courts are overloaded, with backlogs stretching for years. Immigration hardliners argue that's creating a loophole that allows migrants to ask for asylum, even if their claims are flimsy, because they know they'll be allowed to stay in the U.S. while their cases play out. Republicans say this is a big reason why record numbers of migrants have been arrested at the southern border over the last two years. Here's Senator John Cornyn of Texas speaking on the Senate floor earlier this month.
18: Deterrence is a key component of a safe and secure border, and until the administration starts deterring would-be migrants with frivolous asylum claims from crossing the border, we will remain in a constant
15: state of crisis. This is the tension the Biden administration is trying to manage at the border, how to preserve asylum protections for those who need them, while also deterring migrants from crossing illegally in big numbers and overwhelming the system. The Biden administration has proposed a rule that would make it harder to get asylum if you've crossed the border illegally, without first seeking protection in Mexico or somewhere else along the way. But immigrant advocates worry that plan will put asylum out of reach for many migrants who have valid claims, including survivors of domestic violence. Women like
7: Annabelle.
15: That seems very bad to me, Annabelle says, because many women are the same as me. Fleeing from being murdered by violence. At the airport in Atlanta, Annabelle is pressing right up against the retractable nylon barrier, watching nervously for her children and grandchildren. Finally, after we've been waiting for about an hour, they walk out of the baggage claim. And for a long moment, the whole family just huddles together in one big hug in the middle of the
7: terminal.
15: Annabelle squeezes her three-year-old granddaughter. One of her two sons tosses the kid playfully up in the air, and Annabelle gently scolds him to be careful. In the morning, they'll all head off to her home a few hours away to start their lives together again and celebrate at her favorite restaurant, the Chinese buffet. When we sit down to talk this time, I hear something new in her voice, relief.
7: Mi corazón
15: my heart jumped for joy, Annabelle says. I always said I wasn't complete when they were in El Salvador. I was 50% happy and 50% sad. Now I feel 100% happy. Annabelle's lawyers know all about mixed feelings. They share that happiness, but they also worry that cases like hers may soon be harder to win. Joel Rose, NPR News, Atlanta.
11: You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Coming up at six thirty. One reason the Swiss government forced a sale of Credit Suisse was to protect the Swiss banking brand. Marketplace will look at what the state of that brand actually is.
16: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. Chinnica Orchestra performs Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, Stuart Goodyear, and Florence Price. March 22nd at Jordan Hall. Celebrityseries.org. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day on an upswing. The
0: Dow picked up 1.2 percent, or 383 points. The S&P gained just under a percentage point. NASDAQ went up four-tenths of a percent. In business news, Amazon plans to lay off nearly 9,000 more workers over the next few weeks. The cuts mark the second-largest round of layoffs in the company's history. It's unclear how many workers in Massachusetts will be affected. The company says the layoffs will be made in corporate units, not in fulfillment centers or delivery stations. It's 6:19.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing in the physical and emotional health of young people, and proud to support the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston's performing arts programs in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan, offering opportunities for movement, dance, drama, and music, helping young people build resiliency and
28: self-esteem. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love.
26: Just go to WBUR.org.
0: Start your day here tomorrow. The Fed is weighing another interest rate hike. The Boston Lyric Opera premieres a new production at the city's cruise port. And teachers in L.A. may strike. Follow the news tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies tonight with temps in the low 30s. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high around 60. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me no
29: problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute
0: of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today.
11: It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Elsa Chang. The Colorado River is shrinking, and who gets to use its water was at stake in a case before the Supreme Court today. Justices heard arguments in a case brought by the Navajo Nation, and the eventual ruling could blow up the delicate balance of how water from the river is shared. Here to explain more is NPR's Eric Whitney, our Bureau Chief for the Rocky Mountains and Great Plains. Hi, Eric.
6: Hello, Elsa. So
10: why exactly is the Navajo Nation suing the federal government here?
6: The Navajo Nation says that the federal government owes them water based on a pair of treaties that they signed back in the 19th century. Those treaties say that in exchange for people on the nation giving up their nomadic way of life and settling down on a reservation, that the federal government would make sure there's enough water for that and for them to develop agriculture.
10: Okay, and how much water are we talking about here?
6: That's really the central question. And this specific case alone is unlikely to determine that, but depending on how the court rules, it could push the federal government toward defining exactly how much water the Navajo Nation needs. You know, we should note that it's still pretty common for people on the Navajo reservation to not have running water at home. And many people have to drive long distances just to get water for the daily needs. What the court's doing now is re-examining promises made more than a century ago, back when the federal government created Indian reservations It was with this understanding that with the land came adequate water. And there's a lot of case law reaffirming that. Some some tribes have been given specific amounts of water based on that precedent, but exactly how much water is adequate for the Navajo reservation has never been explicitly defined. And in this case, the Navajo nation says, it's not asking for that. It's not asking for a specific amount of water. The tribe just says that the treaties obligate the federal government to come up with a water development plan. Now, coming up with a plan would likely mean defining exactly how much water the Navajo need. And it's very likely that water would have to come from the Colorado River. But the federal (laughs) government disagrees that it's required to come up with a plan. And it's pretty clear that at this time it has no desire to quantify exactly how much water the Navajo Nation has rights to.
10: I mean, why doesn't the federal government want to define how much water the Navajo need? I mean, does it have to do with the huge demand of water that the Colorado River already sees?
6: You know that's sort of the huge elephant in the room here the the federal government has acknowledged how hard it would be to open up negotiations on this water sharing agreement on the colorado especially now in the middle of this strangling drought we're in the middle of and and this with climate change making things very unpredictable you know the colorado is a lifeline for 40 to 50 million people in seven states there's there's already more demand for water from the colorado than is actually in the river And when there's a shortage, those with the oldest water rights are last in line for cuts. So like right now, Arizona is seeing some cutbacks because California has older rights. Hmm. So if it's determined that the Navajo have rights to water in the river, their claims would be among the oldest and the most powerful. So a lot of people are really afraid of Navajo rights being explicitly defined because any water that the Navajo get would have to be taken away from somebody else. But again, you know, the federal government isn't saying that it's shying away from defining Navajo water rights because it would be hard. It's just saying it's not obligated to do so. It says that the treaties only obligate them to reserve enough water for the tribe, not to name a specific amount or to you know, pay for pipelines or canals to actually deliver water to people or farms there. They say that the tribe is on its own to come up with its own plan and you know, it's free to start drilling for groundwater. They say nothing in the treaties obligates the federal government to deliver water to them from the Colorado River.
10: And real quick, Eric, do you have any indication at this point of what the court is likely to do?
6: I mean, first, they're going to have to figure out exactly what the treaties obligate the federal government to do. Right now, the court has a lot of power over the Colorado River because the current water sharing agreement rests on a lawsuit that the Supreme Court uh, uh, ruled on previously. So it could reopen that. But attorneys with the federal government argue that Congress should be the ultimate arbiter here.
10: That is NPR's Eric Whitney. Thank you, Eric.
6: Thank you, Elsa mm um.
11: Right now, the world's number one competitive pinball player is 19-year-old Escher Lefkoff from Longmont, Colorado. So how does one become the world's number one competitive pinball player? Lefkoff says by learning lessons that apply beyond the game. Colorado Public Radio's Matt Bloom has this story.
21: On this game, every single time you start, you get a ball on the right flipper. You control everything that happens in the game. And if you make a decision that ends with you draining, then that's on you.
22: Escher Levkoff is playing a game inside a barn on his family's farm. It's full of rows of dozens of flashing bright pinball machines from classics like Ready Aim Fire to more modern games like Jurassic Park.
5: Fossil
22: Escher's journey to the top of the pinball world started here when he was just old enough to walk. His dad, Adam, a collector and competitive player, coached him he'd bring
18: Escher along with him to a local arcade. And it became a regular, every weekend, Escher and I would go to Lions and play pinball. He really enjoyed playing it from the earliest of
22: age. Escher would stand on a wooden stool between his dad and the machine so he could watch him play. And when he saw a trick he wanted to learn, they would come home to the barn and practice it together.
21: I remember um, there was this one skill called drop catching, which is very difficult, but very useful. And we went on Indiana Jones when I was like nine years old. In our basement and he took the glass off and we sat there for about 20 minutes just practicing over and over and over again and then three weeks later i was great at it
18: after a while they realized escher was pretty good imagine if you played baseball and every single ballpark was completely different and so the kids growing up they on these complicated games i can't keep it all straight escher's sharp memory of different games has helped him crush the competition
22: like during the recent world championships in California.
18: Fifteen seconds again.
22: Lefkoff beat out a veteran player in a Flash Gordon themed game.
15: Whoa! Whoa! He got it! By six, 6 thousand points. points, he wins it!
18: Oh
21: and the moment I saw my score pass one point five million, that's when I turned around and gave my dad a hug after I won. It was more than a hug. Yeah. He jumped he into jumped my in arms.
6: Oh my goodness. <laughs> he wins it!
15: unbelievable
22: the trophies he's won over the years line the walls inside the family's
18: pinball barn escher and his dad have played over 200 tournaments together i could beat three-year-old escher and five-year-old escher with one arm tied behind my back but 16-year-old escher and 19-year-old escher has been kicking my butt for the last few years yeah, when wins. i was about
21: 13 is when it swapped to us being about even and then 16 was when i started
18: yeah there's a serious
21: inflection there's, there's, point you there see, yeah
22: Besides all the competition and rankings, they just love the game and everything it has to offer.
18: The physicality of the buttons and flippers, and of course, the silver ball. You have this ball in play. No matter what you do, that ball is going to drain. You cannot play forever. We are going to die. That is just a fact of life. So it really depends on what you do with the ball, with your opportunities. Mesher's taken that philosophy from his dad to heart.
21: That's why having a plan in pinball is so important, because you gotta know what you're doing next. Have an end goal.
22: His latest goal, hold on to the crown as long as he can. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom in Longmont.
10: This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Well, it's been a day of traffic delays getting on to or exiting Cape Cod at the Sagmore Bridge. This morning the Army Corps of Engineers began a maintenance project on the bridge. The work the work has reduced the four lanes of traffic down to two. It's scheduled to wrap up before Memorial Day weekend. And happy spring, it officially started just over an hour ago, and the weather is playing along nicely. We'll have clear skies tonight and a low around 31. Tomorrow, sunny skies with a high around 60.
16: Marketplace. Place is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University School of Music, with a free concert at Symphony Hall Saturday, April 1st. Reserve at bu.edu cfa slash symphony hall. And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. Themusicemporium.com.